Today, Dr. Melanie Burton, a forensic and counseling psychologist, clinical social worker, and licensed addictions counselor, brings you one step closer to a new you, where you feel empowered and on a positive path to growth and well-being. As a solutions-focused therapist, Dr. Melanie Burton can help you live a life worth celebrating by unearthing those long-standing behavior patterns and perceptions that may be holding you back. And now, here's your host, Dr. Melanie Burton. Hello, everybody. So I am really so happy and excited. Today, I have Denny Meek here. Just to let you know a little bit about Denny. Denny is an author, speaker, and a fighter. Her book, Still Standing, A Mother's Raw Journey from the Shadows of Loss and the Dawning of Hope, received an award as an MMH Press Book Award finalist. It is a stirring memoir that raises awareness about several issues, including domestic violence, infant loss, anorexia nervosa, teen suicide and grief. The book is being used at three Australian universities to inform undergrad and postgrad students in health sciences, social work, psychology, education, and nursing. Denny raised her children primarily as a single mom. Of her four children, three are deceased. One was lost to a rare heart disease as an infant, and two others committed suicide as teenagers on separate occasions. Denny was in two in two main relationships that subjected her to domestic abuse. She has had to confront many losses, pains, and challenging situations, but through it all, she has endured, survived, and learned to live again. Her her full-time mothering was supplemented by a series of odd jobs, from from unemployment project officer to bar staffer, from photographer to professional tarot reader, from video editor to teacher's special aid. Born in Maury, Outback, NSW, Australia, Denny was raised in in a country town, northern NSW near Queensland Gold Coast. She earned a psychology degree from Macquarie University, Sydney, NSW, and later a diploma of freelance journalism by correspondence. She's lived in Tasmania, Melbourne, Victoria, Grimpy, Queensland, Coast Harbor, New South Wales, and now on 12 acres on the southern Gold Coast with her adult son. On her property lives the world's second deadliest snake, the Eastern Brown, which was spotted and filmed in in ritual combat by Denny. And Denny received over 200,000 views on YouTube. 
Wow, what a story. So before we get started, Denny, I wanted to let you know a little bit about why I wanted you to be on my show today. Um, I work with trauma patients. So about 98% of the clientele who I work with and provide services to, they've all suffered trauma. And I believe that you have a really profound story of loss of your own trauma. Like you're a complex trauma survivor. I'll just be honest and say that. And you've survived it all. And it's amazing. And I'm getting goosebumps just just, just talking about it, just thinking about it. Um, so I'm hoping that your story can help heal other people in this beautiful world, in your country, my country, all over the world, who have suffered trauma because they are all survivors and you are a survivor as well. I can't imagine everything that you've gone through and have been able to persevere. And I am so, so sorry for your loss. Thank you. So sorry. Thank you. So, you know, losing a child from a medical condition is extremely traumatic and devastating. But I can't imagine the suicide attempts as well. So can you talk to us a little bit about why suicide prevention sometimes just isn't possible? I think it's because um, suicide is layered. It's never just one reason. You know, it's, there's always a multiplicity of threads that are intertwined. Mm -hmm. And there is an assumption that people take their own lives due to mental illness, but it's not always the case. And I think suicide is a complex loss to deal with and mm -hmm. we want to fit it into a neat box to understand it. It's, it's a scary subject too because it yes. hurts and it's hard to understand. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we cut off the neat edges in order to fit it into a box so we don't understand it properly. Uh, there's a stigma around it that stops people from talking openly about it. So uh, what you and I are doing right now is a help to address that stigma. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. And it's, and it's, that it's a complex subject and it's multi-layered mm. and that's why it's it's not always easy to home in on and prevent. Right. And with everything going on in the world today, I don't know what's happening. Teenage suicide is at an all-time high. But as you said, it's not all about a person who has a mental health disorder. It's about pain. Would you agree? Totally, totally. It's not yeah. something that somebody does when they're having a, a good day. You know, and there are so many different reasons. I think of uh, the people in Masada in Israel, the mm -hmm. 1,000 people in Masada, 
you know, their reasons were different to my children's and my children's reasons were different to each other's. Absolutely. Um, the 9-11 jumpers, you know, they had different reasons. Everybody and those who die alone from suicide, they all have their own reasons. But it it is about pain. Um, my daughter said to me not long before she died that she doesn't think anybody really wants to die. She thinks they just want the pain to end. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So losing your child had to be such a really uh, painful and distressful and horrible situation and having to try to nurse your child back to health. Um, how how can we help one who grieves a loss? How how can how can we help one who, who grieves a loss? And I too have a family member in my family who lost a child, a baby due to health conditions. Oh, okay. And but she's she's still even though she uh may not admit it she's still really suffering from that to this day it's just something that you never get over i agree i agree and the death of a baby is a disenfranchised loss so our society doesn't acknowledge it as much as the death of an older child but mm. my baby son was no less my son than my 18 year old son and it was because I missed out on rearing him that I grieved so much. You know, there was no less grief just because he was two months old when he died. Right. And so uh, because it's disenfranchised, it makes it harder. You feel like people are pressuring you to get on with life because they don't understand and they they want to help. You know, their intentions are genuine to help you, but you feel pressured to get on with life and so you just have to pull it inside yourself and keep it to yourself. And mm. no, you don't get over it, you carry it. It's, it's a very sad loss, the loss of a baby. I'm just going to show you something. Please. Oh, how beautiful. Yeah, he was beautiful. Oh, you keep him close to you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for thank you so much for sharing that. <laughs> he was beautiful. We went through a lot with Joseph. Um, is it all right if I share his story? Of course, moment? tell thank us you. his story. Thank you so much. We did not expect what happened. We had no warning about it beforehand. Um, when he was eight days old, we were transferred by uh, by ambulance to the big city the capital city in Queensland, two hours north, mm. and he had continual testing there that was very painful. 16 hours later, we were told that he'd been born with a 1 in 20,000 heart abnormality, he, that he would need urgent open-heart surgery before the end of that week. 
the surgery carried a 30% risk, but without it, he would most certainly die. So <clears throat> that was a huge thing to face. Um, Joseph got through the surgery. He has little fighter's fists. <laughs> and um, he got through the surgery. Um, we climbed a big mountain of medical milestones to his recovery. There's so much to happen in the recovery from a surgery like that. It was open heart. All these drips and monitors and coming off them one by one by one and, you know, everything stabilised in his body, coming off the ventilator. All of these things dominated our lives and every time he recovered, it was a huge celebration until finally he was off all medications with a good prognosis for a healthy, normal life and we were able to take him home at one month. Sometimes things don't always go according to plan and he started to get sick again unexpectedly. We found ourselves back in Brisbane several weeks later and in the middle of one night, uh, he died very suddenly. So it was, all, it was unexpected. It was unexpected and that's, that's a difficult grief as well, especially when you fought so hard and you thought you'd made it, you know, and you're trying to recover. And so with the death of a baby, <clears throat> there are assumptive world violations, you know, that, and that's a big hurt. Uh, there are spiritual questions. How is a baby allowed to survive, uh, to die? How is that allowed to happen? And, um, you know, it takes you through a very deep valley that other people don't see. Mm. A lot of your tragedy has gotten you, it has been really horrible, but it's brought you to this place where you are today, where you've been able to write this amazing book and help other people. I feel I've had no choice, Melanie, because I've been a single mother for most of my parenting, and I feel I've had no choice. I've always had another child I had to stay alive for, even mm -hmm. when I didn't feel like staying alive. And this book, my book, Still Standing, mm -hmm. that was that was a goal I set for myself and I don't know how I would have made it through that big, deep valley of grief had I not set myself that goal. People ask me, was it cathartic to write the book? Writing the book itself wasn't what I would call cathartic. It was a life goal that I reached and I had the satisfaction of reaching that life goal. But it pulled me through, it kept me alive and uh, the journal excerpts from which I wrote it, um, they were a help to me. Journaling has been a huge help to me. It's been my number one coping mechanism. Um, you know, I do that practically daily. Anytime I've got something on my mind, I journal. Mm -hmm. that was the substance for this book so yeah it pulled me through it gave me a mission and I think that uh, having it on my mind to uh, speak to other people about it to try to describe the journey to other people it forced me to dig deeper and to have to articulate it for other people 
mm-hmm. who had not been to those places. So it forced me to dig and um, uh, formulate what I was seeing, share those insights. Yeah. So it sounds like you actually writing that book not only was able to help other people heal, but it was able to help you heal as well. It forced me, it just forced me to keep going. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that it helps others because that was that was the original thought that I had when I was grieving for my eldest son, which was mm-hmm. the second loss we sustained. And uh, I, I was attending a bereaved parent support group at the time and I thought if if I could share, as I had other people sharing with me, if I could share my journey, it might just uh, offer a fraction of meaning for me. If, if I thought that it could help others, it would just, it would make sense of my losses. So when I see people commenting, as I did last night uh, on my Facebook page, I had a comment from somebody I didn't know. Thank you, mm-hmm. Denny. I, I finished reading your book today. Thank you so much for sharing your story with the world. You know, it's, it's a, it is a help. I'm glad that it helps people. My original idea was that I didn't want people to, to think that they were alone. I wanted to address the isolation. Well, you're a very brave person because a lot of parents who have lost a child to suicide, they're not able to really share that with other people. Yeah. Because it's too painful. Yeah. It's too painful and the stigma um it thwarts that you know, they they want to be able to talk and talking is really important. Mm-hmm. But that that is thwarted by the stigma. Because you 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 just feel that stigma. I knew three other mothers who had lost a child to suicide and we were a great Um, comfort to each other and one of them said to me I don't feel the stigma and I've thought a lot about that my dear friend is not with us anymore but um, yeah she said that she didn't really feel the stigma I don't I don't necessarily hear it in what people say but I feel it in I just feel it in the vibe when you introduce the subject there's a discomfort there's a bit of an emotional disconnect. It's a scary subject for people. And there's a big undiscussed history that comes with suicide. It's not, not very old. It's only a couple of centuries since people believed that those who suicided would become vampires. Now, I think that's really extreme. It, it sounds so ridiculous for me to say it out loud. There are still countries who believe this. Mm. Um, and... You know, leaving the histories of taboo subjects like that undiscussed helps perpetuate the stigmas. So this is something we need to do. What you're doing, offering, talking about taboo subjects and things that need discussing is the first step. Absolutely. Absolutely. So talk to us a little bit about how a person finds the courage to live in the face of death. One day at a time, 
And when that's too much, an hour at a time, I went into a state of psychological survival, which I still use at times when I need to. I I have generalised anxiety and social anxiety and, as you mentioned, complex PTSD. And when the anxiety gets too much for me, I just pull myself into survival. Sometimes literally I close the curtains in the house and I just do what I need to do and what I have to do. If it's really bad, I put my feet up and watch Star Trek. <laughs> you know, I just take myself away into the future, away from planet Earth. and Right, you know. get a huge distraction. <laughs> <laughs> a distraction that takes you to another place. Help me, Jean-Luc Picard. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, whatever, whatever I need to do. But um, I think that... Journaling was a help to me. I would recommend counselling. I think that's if if you're finding that, you know, the people around you cannot support you, uh, a support group is good. Online support groups are great Mm -hmm. because even just reading the comments in an online support group, you see that you're not alone. Sometimes somebody will articulate a detail that only one who had been through that experience would know and then you just feel the connection and it's that connection that we need. That's what does the trick, you know. It does it for us. It addresses the pain and reconnects us from the isolation. Right. And like you said, you don't feel like you're alone. Mm. You're not alone. There's commonality Mm. within that group setting. Mm. Yeah. So how do you how do you answer why me? Why did this happen to me? I think that's a very difficult question. I think it's a very difficult psychic pain, Melanie, that one. It's a it's an isolation question, that one. For me <clears throat> I didn't I didn't feel that question when I lost my baby son. We lost Joseph first. Um, and I didn't, I didn't feel it then, but, and I did not feel it through my relationships of domestic violence. Mm -hmm. My daughter went on to develop anorexia nervosa, fully blown anorexia. I didn't feel it then. It was getting very difficult. But when my son took his life, I started to feel that why me then? It was like too much, just too much. And I felt like a pawn swept around a chessboard. I felt like there were different rules for me than for other people, like I was on a different planet. And uh, all I can say is that journaling and expressing it somehow, it was the way through to just not pretend for people that I wasn't feeling in that space. I went through a very deep, dark night of the soul, and that was incredibly painful because my spirituality was everything to me and I felt abandoned by God. Yes, how could you not? How could you not? Yeah, how could you not? And it's different when your circumstances are not of the norm in your culture. If I was in a country where this was common, it would not be as challenging. I have a cousin who's a, a psychotherapist and she uh, she at one stage was counselling torture victims and refugees and they had a community 
where they had all suffered terrible losses of loved ones, but they were in a community and they bonded very closely. And so they didn't feel so alone. But when it's not the norm for your culture, and it isn't in a developed country to lose several children, and to have all these taboo subjects visit your life so personally as I have, it's it's more isolating. So that why me question, um, you know, I couldn't, I haven't been able to confide that in people because when I do, um, their lack of understanding, um, it reinforces my differentness. But, you know, it's been a while now and I think that when you are forced to live with it, you have to move forward. You have to find ways through <clears throat> and uh, that why me question, it's sort of not an issue for me now. It's almost no. like a waste of energy. Now mm -hmm. I feel I just can't be bothered asking it anymore. I didn't find an answer as to why me. <laughs> there are others who would offer me explanations, but that suits their circumstances. It doesn't resonate for me. I'll have to wait. I'll have to wait till I die to find out. Right. There really is no answer to why something so horrible would happen to you or anyone else. I but don't think so. Do you do you have any idea in your work? Well, you know, they're really and I I have so many patients who I work with who wonder, you know, why did this have to happen to me? Why did I have to be born into this world and experience all the pain that I've experienced? You know, I have a young lady I see tomorrow, and that was the topic of her conversation with me last week. There's no answers to it, but I think certain people go through certain things because they are strong enough to be able to persevere and because they were appointed to do a certain job. They have a job to do. Yeah, that's about the most sense that I've been able to make of it. It's mm -hmm. not enough, but the unanswered questions, the rest of them, I just have had to learn to live with those. I've had to learn to embrace the mysteries of life rather than the mastery as everybody around me is doing. Mm -hmm. And that's hard. That's isolating too. But you, I just don't see that you have a choice. You have to develop the resilience and strength to keep getting yourself through. I think with my baby son's life and death, I started then to say everything that difficult that came along after that I would I would look back to Joseph's life and the death and the grief and I'd think well if I got through that I can do this and that enabled me to build on that experience to validate my pain mm -hmm. to not pretend it hadn't happened or play it down but just keep building on it honoring it and um, doing that helps build resilience I think I mean, I have these conditions still, they, they challenge me when I get stressed, the complex PTSD especially. And oh, sometimes yeah. 
the social anxiety. But, mm. you know, I'm proud, Melanie. I'm proud of what I've survived. I'm proud of getting my book out to help other people. I'm proud that it's in three Australian universities and is contributing to the minds of the fields of tomorrow. You know, really proud of myself and my children for contributing to the world in that way. You should be. You <laughs> should be. Thank so, you. again, you know, you went through such horrible traumatic experiences but you had a job to do and you're doing it thank you you're not you're not just wallowing in your grief and despair you're doing the work that you were put on this earth to do and I thank you for helping me do it so you know you're I want to talk to you about being a single mother, but you're also a domestic violence survivor. Yeah. Which is another layer of the trauma that you've experienced throughout your life. So can you talk to us a little bit about what to do when domestic violence visits your home? I would say take it very seriously. I don't know the stats in uh, America, but I know here in Australia, since COVID, um, our domestic violence rates have increased. In America they, too. Yeah. And child abuse. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, here they affect one in three women. I know that men are victims as well, women much more often and that the financial considerations for a woman and social and et cetera are more challenging for women. Um, I would say, you know, the counsellors, the research will say at the first instance of violence, leave. And if that's possible, I would do it. I had that in my mind. I've had two relationships of domestic violence. And at the first instance in my second relationship, I left. I did not intend to leave permanently because we had a child and I wanted to work on it. But I I removed us physically from that situation and worked on the relationship from afar. I understand that it's not always possible for people to leave immediately. There are, you know, there are some very extenuating circumstances. But I would say at least take it very seriously. Um you know, protect yourself with rational thinking. Um, uh, keep a, a separate account that you call emergency funds. Mm -hmm. Seek counselling. Most definitely seek counselling. That will that will support you and support your thinking on the subject too and reality test where you're at with it. Yeah. Right. They say it takes five to seven times for a female victim of domestic violence to actually leave. Yes. But you can't just pick up and leave. Often you, you, you just, it, it's not always safe mm -hmm. to just pick up and leave, especially if he knows where you are. That's exactly so, yeah. like you said, you need to get together with a really good therapist and come up with a safety plan. Yes. 
mm. and take small steps mm. to work towards leaving the relationship. And of course, it's a secret. You don't tell him that you're leaving. You take mm. small steps to prepare for that leave. Mm. When I was going through this, uh, the law in our country and the law's attitudes towards it were uh, changing. They were in transition. So the first in my marriage, um, after an episode of domestic violence, I phoned the police and I said, could you please tell me about the new domestic violence court order? And he said, no, never heard of it. And I'd just seen a program the day before about it. So they were not informed at that time. And I said, okay, so what do you normally do in circumstances of domestic violence? And he said, oh, we don't really like to get involved in domestic disputes, love, which was how it was back then. You know, women would disappear and you wouldn't know where they'd gone and nothing would be said about it. It wasn't even illegal. Death by domestic violence was not considered as seriously as a murder of someone unknown. And then about eight years later, eight or nine years later, in my in a subsequent relationship where there was violence, I phoned the police and uh, the policewoman said, so when did this happen? And I said, the night before last. And she said, who did you speak to about it then? I said, no one. And she said, you mean this is the first time you've reported it? And I said, yes. And she said, Why? You don't wait. You've got, you have to contact us immediately. And so the law's attitude towards it had changed in my time. It's different now. Mm -hmm. Counselors know to help people with a safety plan. That wasn't happening in my time. But, yeah, the rates are still bad, Melanie. The rates for DV are still bad. So, you know, I keep looking to society rather than individual situations. I keep looking to society and feel that we need to address things on a social level about all these taboos, really. Grief, death, we are a death-denying society, domestic violence, um, mental illness, uh, suicide. You know, they're all things that have stigmas and taboos around them. Talking about it as we are is a great help. But, uh, you know, raising social awareness is uh, very important. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the laws in America have changed as well. It used to be really difficult for a woman to even have her abuser arrested. Mm -hmm. But now it's it's much easier today. That is if the police actually believe you. Wow. Because a lot of times the woman might be considered the abuser, even though she has bruises all over her face. Mm. Mm. And so It's a big consideration for the woman. And I think that it's unfair that it's the woman who should have this weight on her about whether or not to report it. Yes. I, I was in that situation about uh, a breach of a domestic violence order. And I did ring the police and told him that the domestic violence order had been breached. And he said, would you give me your name? And I said, could you tell me what would happen if I did give you my name? Mm -hmm. And he said, we will come around and arrest him. 
He would take him down to the police station, fingerprint him, photograph him and charge him with a breach of the domestic violence order. A court hearing date would be set. He would not be allowed to contact you in that time. And then after that, he might get a sentence. <clears throat> he would definitely get a fine. And I thought of all those consequences and how I would be blamed for them by him and people who knew him and not me. And I just thought it's not worth it. It's better if I leave. And, you know, why should it have been my consideration whether to report his right. abuse? Right. Why does it always come back to the woman? This weighs too heavily on women. Mm. So you you got out of those two violent relationships and and you were forced to have to be a single mother. Yeah. So can you talk to us about the complexities of being a single mother? In the context of my life, my single parenting journey was my happy chapter. <laughs> you know, it's you and I, your kids. Yeah, just me and my kids. <laughs> It was beautiful. It was beautiful because we were living without the tension of the domestic violence. Right. And we we had choice and we had room to be ourselves and freedom and not have to walk on eggshells. Exactly. Exactly. And we just really loved that freedom. Um I loved watching my children's individuality um, growing and expanding. And I encouraged it and embraced them. I, I had on the level chats with them. I, I had always done that anyway, but I was glad to be able to give my attention full time to mothering them. It was a stress and it was a stress, especially when I started to notice behaviours in my daughter. She was about nine mm -hmm. <clears throat> and I started to notice behaviours in her that rattled me. I have a background in psychology, but it wasn't that it was a gut feeling I had about it. She started to develop an overinterest in food and diet and exercising and and she looked healthy. So I couldn't get anybody to listen to me and I couldn't get help before anything had manifested. But by the time this illness had manifested in her enough for somebody to take note and listen, she was about 12. And um, by then she was starting to get skinny. Um, I want to say that there is a four times greater risk of children who've lived with domestic violence of developing a mental illness. And there is a six times greater risk of children who've lived with domestic violence to commit suicide. So, and they don't have to be directly involved or directly exposed to be affected. That Very really true. shocked me. It shocked me terribly to come across that statistic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so my, my daughter did develop fully blown anorexia nervosa and she was hospitalised and um, we had a, a real journey with that. It was a very difficult illness to live within our home. It was distressing and it affected all of us. I didn't realise at the time the way my eldest son and I were feeling about it, the helplessness that we felt watching this illness creep in and want to steal her life, uh, I didn't realise that it was normal. We, we were angry. 
we were sad, we were distressed and helpless and um, just watching my daughter Ali get skinnier and skinnier and more obsessed and sicker. By the time she was admitted to hospital, she was the sickest anorexia patient her team had ever seen. Wow. She, she had a long list of symptoms. Her heart rate at rest was 38 beats a minute and she was 13. She had a pericardial effusion, big pericardial effusion, and fluid on one side of her heart. You know, blood levels, low platelet, um, low white blood count, uh, low blood pressure, everything. Her, the organs in her body had surrendered the last of their fat to the vital organs, the brain and the heart. Even those had begun to slow. The brain evidenced in her prosody, it's called, which is a slow, slurred speech. So she was very unwell and she was in hospital for six months. She was an incredibly uh, smart student. She'd been at a gifted and talented school, and um, which is often the case, very, very driven. Girls who, who get anorexia are often very driven and often perfectionistic. 87, right. 87% of gifted and talented children are perfectionists, and that's a, a trait that often features in anorexia. That's very, so, very true. Yeah. So we went through a long, a long, difficult journey with the anorexia. And uh, her first high school year without a hospitalisation, she came ducks of her year. <clears throat> and then a month later, her brother took his own life. So it's like we really didn't get a break. And um, But ironically... Because Ali was so close to her brother, his death precipitated her recovery from anorexia because compared with his death, nothing mattered as much anymore, including her anorexia. And within a very short time, she had she started to put on the weight again by herself. Um, she got her first boyfriend. She was 15. She finally got her first period. You know, the anorexia kept her yeah. body in a young state. And uh, then the influx of hormones and the rebellion against her mother. <laughs> it, was a, it was a real period of time, that one. She, she got through that. It took about two years for her to settle. And um, then we had a, a more stable two years, four years after her brother died, my daughter in the middle of a difficult stretch, a challenging stretch, she took she took her own life as well. Yeah, she was nineteen. So, mm, I still have a child left too, Mel. My youngest child still lives with me. He's a baker. He just qualified mm. as a baker last year. He's a duck student as well. He's a very bright, smart person has a great sense of humor he's a lovely companion in my life he's quiet he sticks to himself but he's very witty he loves to put me down in subtle quiet joking gentle ways mm -hmm. he's the one who makes me watch star trek <laughs> <laughs> turning me into a chalky 
<laughs> Truly a gift. He's a gift. He is a gift. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I think the domestic violence had a lot to do with your daughter having such a devastating eating disorder because that was her way of trying to gain control, some exactly. sense of control. Exactly. Because she never felt like she had any control of anything in her life. And that was her way of having control. I agree with you. And it's interesting that um, she, that's an issue of control and complex PTSD is as well. Mm-hmm. As that, that pervading sense of powerlessness. Mm. So yeah. uh, how, how can you help a child with an eating disorder? Um. For me, I got her when when I was able to have her consent, you know, challenge her. There were arguments, you know, it was distressing. But one day it finally clicked for her when I said, Ali, you need help. She said, I know if I could get any. So I said, do you want me to see if I can find some for you? And she said, yes. So when she finally agreed, um, I we have community health here. I was able to get her referred to a psychologist and we had weekly appointments with a GP, psychologist and dietitian, and that went on for months. It wasn't great help. Um, the, the psychologist said, you know, you have an eating disorder but it's not anorexia. And I spoke to her about that. I said, I, I, you are the professional here. I'm the, I'm the worried mother. I respect what you have to say, but I disagree with you. I believe Ali has anorexia and she has a really bad case of it. And the psychologist apparently kept her in denial for the rest of that year while she got sicker and sicker. Um, but I would, I would suggest if you can get good help, those three, the dietitian, uh, the family physician, and you know mental health um and preferably uh you can keep them out of hospital that way because early intervention renders the best results with an eating disorder definitely yeah definitely yeah and support counseling for yourself if you can absolutely because like you said that has a tremendous effect on the entire family Mm. especially a mom mm. so Denny before we end is there anything else that you'd like to share with the audience I'm prepared to give them um, information on how they can reach you but do you have any any closing words for people out there I want people to know that they're not alone Mel I want them to know that I want them to know that whatever humannesses they experience, it's part of a bigger picture. <clears throat> and I would like to see people not blame themselves and be hard on themselves. I'd like to see the stigmas and taboos addressed on a social level so that we can address the shaming of all of these subjects that affected me so much mm-hmm. that were exacerbating my suffering. Um, so continuing this um, public conversations is a help Um, 
no, just just go easy on yourself. Yes. <laughs> Don't yes. blame yourself for these bad things. It's... Yes. Okay, so if you would like to contact Denny Meek, Denny Meek, she can be reached at www.dennymeek.com.au. She's in Australia. Yeah. .au is it's, the page for the book, but .com is the website. Okay. <laughs> she is is actually Thursday at almost 10 o'clock in Australia. Yeah. Yeah. Here is, you know, is Wednesday, 7 o'clock. <laughs> so, again, www.dennymeek.com. Yeah. Her Facebook business page is https www.facebook.com slash stillstandingdenny. Yes. That's where you can get her book. She's also on LinkedIn, www.linkedin.com. N dash N Denny. This is long. Dash M dash one A three six zero seven seven nine. So the best place to reach her is on her Facebook page and definitely www.dennymeek.com.au. Dot com. Dot com, Melanie. Yeah, just the fact, just my www, website. Yes, she is also at www.denny, D-E-N-N-Y, meek, M-E-E-K, dot com. That's it. That's and Denny really wants everyone to know that if they are in crisis, they can call 988 for the Suicide Crisis Lifeline. The National Suicide Hotline is 1-800-784-2433. 1-800-784-2433. Or to talk to someone, you can call 1-800-273-8255. 1-800-273-8255. The National Domestic Violence Hotline is 1-800-799-SAFE, S-A-F-E. National Domestic Violence Hotline, 1-800-799-SAFE, S-A-F-E. The Eating Disorders Awareness and Prevention can be contacted at 1-800-931-2237. So if you have a child who's suffering from an eating disorder, you can contact the Eating Disorders Awareness and Prevention. Or if you yourself are suffering from an eating disorder, you can contact the Eating Disorders Awareness and Prevention. Their number is one 800 931 2237. Lovely. Thank you. It's been a pleasure meeting you. I'm going to keep in touch with you. I pray for you every day. I pray for you to have strength to keep doing everything that you're doing. You are my inspiration. (laughs) You have truly inspired me. You're my inspiration. I know you are an instrument in, in inspiration to 
everyone else who has listened to this show tonight. And I bless you. I bless your beautiful son. And I thank you so much for your courage, your wisdom, and your strength, and your courage for sharing your story and helping to save other people's lives because that's mm -hmm. what you're doing, Denny. You're that's saving right. other people's lives. Thank you for being a vehicle for it, Melanie. Thank you for helping me to do my work on the planet. Most definitely. Thank you so, on behalf of my children as well. Oh, your beautiful children. There they are, all three of them. Thank you so much for sharing. Your daughter is so beautiful and your son is so yeah. handsome. Yeah, and your are. baby is just absolutely gorgeous. What a beautiful family. Yeah, they are Your beautiful. daughter looks so much like you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> thank you so, so I will be in touch with you again. And, you know, Brittany did a wonderful job. Yes, so I thank her for connecting us together and getting this done. Me too. Thank you so much for having me, Melanie. Thank you so much, Denny. <laughs> we're going to have you back. Thank you. And we're going to all go out and buy your book. Yeah, great. Still standing. Amazon too, through Amazon and all good bookstores as well. Oh, I very... might or at some stage, so it would be lovely to see you. <laughs> yes, yes, it will be. It will be. So let's keep in touch, okay? We will. Thank you. Thank you, Thanks. Denny. Thank you. Bye. God bless. You too. Thanks. Thanks.